This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. The world of ESG recently in focus here at the Wharton School. Earlier this month, the Nazarian Social Innovator in Residence program returned to discuss the intersection of ESG, law, and diversity. The featured speaker has a long background in the legal setting on a variety of important issues of the day. That is Carl Racine, who is a partner and chair of the State Attorney's General Practice with the Washington, D.C. law firm of Hogan Lovells. He is also a former Attorney General for the District of Columbia, as well as being the 2023 Nazarian Social Innovator in Residence uh, honoree. Carl, pleasure to have you with us. Thanks very much for your time today. Really great to be here with you, Dan. Thank you. Let, let me start kind of larger scope here, if I can, and from your perspective, where the discussion around ESG is at this moment, and, and I'll, I'll take it from two fronts. One, there is obviously the professional side that you on the legal side of this, but also personally as well. Sure. Let me go to the uh, professional first. Um, you know, look, clients uh, throughout the world um, are focused, <clears throat> as you know, and have been focused for years and even decades uh, on ESG. I think um, as you look at the uh, clients around the world and financial industry, related industries, including insurance, you know, what they're looking at when they look at ESG, of course, are important factors for them to consider uh, in regards to how to make the most money for their clients. As we've seen over the last year and a half or so, the term ESG has become hotly politicized, and with that comes a level of misinformation and disinformation around what ESG is and is not. And so there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation uh, to the effect, in my view, that ESG uh, is some something that is akin to anti-woke business. Um, financial players, sophisticated players, certainly know that ESG uh, has to do with considering material risk all around, uh, trying to bring the greatest level of return uh, to um, investors, um, and that it's, it's, it's not um, a, a measure of being woke at all. So sadly, ESG has entered into a popular conversation fueled by uh, partisan legislatures and, and, and AG, um, and they're um, causing some havoc in the marketplace as clients are understandably concerned as to whether their engagement in ESG is creating an opportunity of legal risk for them. Is, is, it, is it surprising to a degree that we have such uh, fervent conversation coming from the anti-ESG side, especially when there is that component of good business, uh, of financial success that is, is tied to, is linked to a lot of the companies in that space? Yeah, I think it's quite ironic. Um, you know, unfortunately, it, it, uh, it was the case, um, you know, uh, for a long, long time that uh, the Republicans um, you know, really prided themselves on a pro-business uh, environment um, and a less intrusive, um, you know, perspective in terms of government's reach uh, into business. That's not been the case at all 
with respect to ESG, where we've seen very active uh, Republican attorney general action, letters, subpoenas, uh, even a couple of lawsuits. And we've also seen the same coming from governor's mansions, uh, most um, uh, particularly uh, Governor DeSantos, uh, with respect to what he is willing to do and not do in terms of forcing divestment uh, from financial firms uh, that uh, practice ESG. How much do you think, then, the the anti-ESG movement benefits from the political discord that we have in Washington right now? You know, it's uh, it's a great question, and I think uh, because there's a level of discord, the uh, anti-ESG opponents have, you know, a really good field of play to sow even more um, discord from. And we've seen that with respect to the House Government Oversight Committee and Finance Committee expressing an interest in exploring ESG in regards to congressional hearings. Uh, we've also seen, um, you know, a split in the Senate uh, with even a couple of Democrats going over to the Republican side with respect to concerns about ESG and how that's playing out with respect to the SEC reporting requirements and even the Department of Labor fiduciary responsibility requirement. So there is no doubt that uh, discord in D.C. allows for discord in ESG. We're joined by Carl Racine, who is a a partner and chair of the state attorney's general practice uh, in the firm of Hogan Lovells in in Washington, D.C. When you think back to your time uh, in the the D.C. attorney general's office, how do you try and focus on some of those issues around ESG? How, How do you move forward uh, as the attorney general in that uh, in that office? Sure, uh, and thank you for the question there. So I was AG back in August of 2022, not so long ago, uh, when the um, Republican AG letter uh, to essentially the asset managers, including BlackRock, Vanguard, and all of them uh, came out. Um, I was quite interested in studying uh, the AG letter and to ascertaining independently whether I thought uh, it was more political in nature or whether there were actually legal principles at play. Um, What I determined and my team in D.C. determined was that there was uh, politics at play, much more so than any legal uh, considerations relating to investors. Uh, And so I I led uh, the opposition uh, to the Republican letter, uh, getting 17 or 18 of my colleagues to join me in a letter uh, taking the position that consideration of ESG factors in investing is entirely legal, that it's not new, and that it's, in fact, prudent. So that's been my engagement. Let me, let me ask you, if, if I can, to kind of shift it a little bit, because the the – the role of the state attorney's general office, I think, is a unique one to watch. I mean, for a long time, you've always heard stories coming out of the New York attorney generals and, and, and other states. But it seems like now, in the last couple of years, that we're seeing, and maybe even a shorter time frame, we're seeing more action, more activity coming out of state attorney's general office than ever before. And, and really, in many cases, transformative type of work 
around legislation, around, you know, uh, um, violations that may have occurred, that there is more activity going on and more important activity going on than ever before. So, Dan, I think you're exactly right. Um, and in a real way, state attorneys general, um, you know, uh, are ascending and have been ascending in the, in the political and legal avenue um, for the last 10 plus years. You needn't look uh, too far, but the opioid crisis, and you, you'll see ready examples of Democratic uh, attorneys general and Republican attorneys general working together to help solve a national problem, working together to hold companies accountable and working together uh, to get needed resources to those individuals who are suffering um, from addiction. Uh, it's also clear that state AG are taking outsized roles on uh, social issues. You see, for example, the discussion around the so-called abortion pill. That yeah. legal battle is being fought, um, certainly by the company that produces the drug, but also by state AGs, um, mostly Republican on the side of not wanting uh, uh, patients to have access to that pill, and uh, on Democrats on the side of wanting patients to have reproductive rights. So what we're seeing is a near um, explosion of AG actions in matters that matter most importantly uh, to residents of our country. And I don't think um, the ascendancy of AGs is going to go away anytime soon. And, and I would imagine that it, with the uh, the role of big tech playing uh, an ever-growing uh, phase in our lives, that uh, state attorneys general office are going to have more and more on their plate from that sector as well. That's exactly right. And you've seen that uh, in years past with both Republican and Democratic AG joining forces uh, to investigate uh, antitrust violations, potential privacy violations, concerns writ large about the role of social media uh, and the potential dangers that it yep. may be causing uh, to children. We hear a lot about TikTok. Um, I'm here to say that you also hear a lot about other tech companies, and there is no doubt that you'll see uh, state attorneys general quite active uh, in those areas. How, how much then do those offices have a greater chance right now to really affect change on a lot of these issues, even more so than Capitol Hill at this point? You know, I think it's a great question. We've seen a lot of stalling around very important issues uh, on the part of Capitol Hill. There's a concern that there's not much that can be done um, proactively and productively. And so when you talk about issues that remain uh, unresolved, issues such as, you know, privacy, uh, issues around antitrust and anti-competition, issues around keeping our children safe, you're going to see more attorney general um, step into the lurch uh, and bring investigations and lawsuits. And then you'll see more state legislatures making laws. I think we're on now our sixth state that has its own privacy uh, regime. And part of the reason why the states are doing this is because they don't have confidence that there'll be a federal comprehensive privacy law. 
We're joined by Carl Racine uh, talking about uh, the role of the state attorneys general's offices around the United States. I know you uh, also around the discussion around big tech, part of the uh, the discussion here at Penn uh, earlier this uh, this this month uh, was around algorithms and, and the concern around the bias uh, that may be out there in, in some cases. How much of a concern is it on your mind right now and just in general at this point? Sure. I think it's really important for all of us to know, um, you know, how radically different things are today uh, than they were 25 years ago when we didn't have big data, big technology, uh, and AI. And so AI is omnipresent, as you well know, and it plays a critical role in the lives of Americans on the most essential aspects, health, um, who, where are you going to buy a house or rent a property, um, whether you're going to get a job, um, all, all, whether you go to college or, or private school, all of these gateways to prosperity um, are now, um, you know, play, are, are now subject to AI decision making uh, in the course of people applying for these gateways to society. So it's really important, I would argue, to ensure that AI is utilized in an economic and productive way that does not have built-in biases um, against people in it. And so that's the AI bill that I authored in the District of Columbia that unfortunately did not uh, make it into law. But the hope is that there's enough want uh, moving forward at some point down the road to be able to, to get a bill like that passed and, and move it forward, correct? I think that's exactly right. You're seeing a lot of enthusiasm around the country for that kind of a bill. You're seeing uh, the Biden administration adopt uh, aspects of civil rights protection, even in its executive orders and guidance around AI. And I have to tell you that now I'm in the private sector. I can tell you that the various industries of play are also um, really digging in and trying to make sure their products don't foster discrimination. The last thing people want to do is create legal um, exposure for themselves. And what I've seen is that my clients are focused also on doing the right thing. Carl, pleasure to have you with us. Thanks very much for your time today. Look forward to maybe chatting again down the road on a lot of these topics. Thank you, sir. Anytime, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you with us. Carl Racine, partner and chair in the D.C. law firm Hogan Lovells, also former attorney general for the District of Columbia. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.